0: This is Liminal Leaders, a podcast exploring the changing nature of leadership in business transformation.
1: And we are your hosts, Martin Dyson and Brian Hoadley. For new listeners, each episode follows one of two formats. It's either a drop-in session where Brian and I discuss various themes in our book, reflecting on how the topics have manifested in our own practice and where we might take our writing next.
0: Or Martin and I have a discussion with a guest expert or contributor who we want to interview as part of our research.
1: Either way, these are pretty much the raw recordings of our conversations with minimal editing, allowing you to listen in on our working and thinking process.
2: think what is the distinction is the mindset around systems thinking. So kind of, I talk about sort of the underlying, yeah, sort of like driving concepts, which are interconnectedness, causality, and wholeness, and trying to continually use that lens to kind of think more expansively about whatever it is you're doing. And so if you're using that lens, you know, a stakeholder mapping might look kind of different.
1: Today, Brian and I are in discussion with Cheryl Kababa. She is the author of a book called Closing the Loop, which is a fantastic primer on systems thinking for designers. It goes through the basic principles of systems thinking, some of the tool sets that are used, the mindsets that are used, and applies them to the context of the work of designers. Now, this is a great book, both for designers and non-designers alike, Uh, and really for anybody involved in product development or transformation and change. Because you can see how these principles of systems thinking are simply applied for reuse in many contexts. We wanted to have a talk with Cheryl and find out a little bit more about what was behind writing the book, how she came to these observations about systems thinking as relevance beyond its own discipline. And we thought that would be really useful as an input to our own thinking in the book specifically because we're looking to see how things like systems thinking and design thinking can be picked up and applied by people for whom those are not their primary discipline. I hope you enjoy listening into this conversation and that you get loads out of it. I know Brian and I did, and we really enjoyed our conversation with Cheryl. So let's hear what Cheryl had to say. Cheryl, uh, welcome to uh, Liminal Leaders. Thank you very much for joining Brian and I here today. Yes,
2: thank you for having me. I'm excited for this discussion.
1: Brian and I have been talking about your book. It, it came out, this is Closing the Loop on Rosenfeld Media. It came out just as we were recording one of the episodes for Liminal Leaders where we were discussing system thinking and, and, and its role in business and some of our experiences with it. And the book came out, and we, were like, we need to talk to Cheryl. <laughs> we absolutely need <laughs> to talk to Cheryl and see and hear a little bit from some of your experience. But before we get into that conversation, which I'm really excited about, Could you please just let anybody that's listening in get a little sense of you, just like brief background, where you've come from, where you're working at the moment, that kind of thing. Who is Cheryl, the design leader?
2: Yes, for sure. So currently I'm the chief strategy officer for a small consultancy in Seattle called Substantial, and we do design research and strategy all the way through product design and software development, so full service. And I'm doing a lot of work currently in education, which hasn't always been like a domain that I've specialized in, but I think that's kind of informed my view on systems thinking. And I'm also, uh, I lecture at the University of Washington in their human-centered design and engineering program. And so, yeah, I teach a course there. So yeah. Kind of an educator, uh, like or not across—I wouldn't say across the board—but in, in sort of different forms. And uh, yeah, my background is in design research and strategy. I've spent a lot of time at various consultancies, such as Frog, Adapted Path, and uh, another firm called Artifact here in Seattle. And before that, I was—I started my career as a product designer. So I worked at Microsoft, Philips Design and uh, Getty images. And so I think a lot of my perspective is actually informed by basically what I've experienced in the earlier part of my career as a product designer, as well as kind of moving into more of this design research and strategy space, where I've been able to sort of interrogate some of the design practices that we engage in, as well as kind of continually be forced to reinvent my practice through that mm. sort of design strategy lens. So yeah. I think that's kind of like a quick summary of my background.
1: Cool. Thank you. I, and you mentioned there there's a, that there's there's a kind of there's an experience built up over time that has I think lent you towards this this particular interrogation that's resulted in in this book. So what I mean I know Brian and I in one of the previous episodes were discussing system thinking and its role. And I think, you know, people that have been listening to the podcast would heard some of our exploration around that, but what is it that, what is it from your experience as a design leader that has, that, that kind of instigated this, I need to, I need to write a book on this. What did you observe about design and business that, that made you want to write this book? Yeah, it's,
2: it's kind of interesting. Just like, Being a consultant and working with different organizations in various domains we tend to come into let's say projects or engagements and interactions with organizations at a certain point in time and so it was working on like with organizations that develop sort of complex products and services all the way from you know banking organizations to uh yeah, large like e-commerce re- retailers, as well as like large philanthropies and also big pharma. Like, these are all the kinds of organizations that sometimes they'll hire a consultancy to basically be like, hey, can you kind of build out this X platform, like our consumer platform or something like that? And as, you know, my team and I would be kind of like working on such a product project we would be kind of asking all sorts of questions about like how decisions have been made from the business perspective and like sometimes those things did not align with each other right like the product that we are building would sometimes have I could foresee barriers and challenges kind of based on maybe some of the ideas of like how they were going to have consumers kind of like use this product I think there was and one example is I was working on as a design researcher on kind of understanding how like a grocery pickup system would work for um, a large retailer. I'm, I'm trying to just say like just enough, so I don't get in trouble or. or, or, or um... Yeah. We've all, we've all got those stories.
1: <laughs>
2: it was like, how do I tell this story and give enough information without like breaking any sort of NDA? And they were kind of, yeah, you could order groceries online and then you would go and pick up your groceries. And so we were hired, like I was working with an industrial designer to design the shelving system. And my research was oriented towards like how people would respond to the shelving system. But I was like kind of discovering all these different things like related to that, like as we started asking questions, which is like, where are these pickup systems going to be oh they're going to be uh, i don't know like at gas stations and convenience stores and it was like does the, how like what are how are the gas stations involved oh well we've like developed partnerships with them mm-hmm. is there parking there like all of these like yeah. things that would surface that were decisions that were made in advance of like how mm-hmm. they decided to do this and we kept like coming up with sort of ideas that like flew in the face of the decisions that they made already, which is like, Oh, they should probably put these in this kind of environment instead of Mm -hmm. gas station. Like the gas stations, like do not have enough space for the way they're thinking about, they were thinking about the shelving system. It would actually make sense to place it in their partner grocery stores or whatever. And yeah, it was just too late for that. And it was kind of like, I don't know, in the end, I could kind of see that they were going to scrap this project at some point, like after they'd spent huh. all this money with yeah. us to design this. And that's exactly what happened. And it was mm-hmm. just kind of like, we designed this amazing thing for like the wrong reasons, basically. Yeah. And and yeah, I, I would see that over and over again when working with like big pharma companies, when working in like global health. And it was just kind of like, huh like how do you kind of surface this thinking one earlier on especially like if you're engaging earlier on or for internal teams that are kind of doing this work earlier on so that you know by the time you get to this point the better decisions have been made
1: it's funny isn't it and i think often researchers or designers that are be involved in discovery research kind of hit those questions a lot sooner than others um, but then you can be like in the further down the line as a designer and you still have those questions like why are we why exactly are we doing this? you know, if I think outside of this this bound. And my observation has been there's just been years of designers saying, C- why aren't we involved in that decision before this? you know? And I and I feel like there's a gap where because people don't see you as relevant right. to being involved in that conversation. And and, I, and I, I certainly I saw your book as an opportunity for people to bridge that relevance with some different thinking.
0: There, there yeah. seems to be a, a kind of perennial upstream issue with designers. Mm-hmm. We're never far enough upstream. No matter no matter how far upstream we are, we're, we're, we're never quite far enough. We're just, just a little bit shy of where we need to be.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that is, that's really, it does feel it feels really typical so i feel like part of it is i've been lucky to have kind of continually moved upstream in my career and <laughs> so i'm no longer a product designer which i think you know oftentimes you are handed down decisions that have been made by other people and you're like there's no you can't like really do much interrogation at that point and so kind of moving up to like research and then moving up to strategy, I think has kind of helped me be in the spaces where, and then also working in spaces where like organizational change design is also happening. I think those are the places where you can actually have somewhat of an impact on like, yeah, being involved upstream. And I think what that involves, and I think I might describe it this way in the book is, I kind of think of myself now as a designer who facilitates other people's like ex- expertise and uses that to like gain alignment and understanding and to help others like engage in creative thinking versus being a designer who's like producing something like an artifact of some sort and so I I think that sort of mindset shift for me had kind of led me to think about yeah to basically start engaging in systems thinking like in a meaningful way, like through the course of my work
0: yeah you you talked about in the book the you know designers engaging with system thinking need to think of themselves in is, as facilitators in in that world and it's it's almost like we you know we come from a world where we try and get to an artifact yeah. and 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 most organizations depending on how where we are how far down the the kind of product delivery model we are—you know—we we might just be focusing on our artifacts, but it's—it's it's interesting to think that you know, because I've talked about this in the past too. This sense of design being more homogenous across the organization. So this this sense of you know, designers not just being relegated to you know a delivery process or a product delivery process, but also using their their tools and method and skills across the organization to help okay. other teams. And and in in that sense, be facilitators. Don't don't be focused on on trying to drive outcomes, their outcomes, but but be there to kind of intermediate and facilitate and connect.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's kind of interesting that uh, who who said this recently. I think I saw a post on LinkedIn that Jesse James Garrett had written where he said. You know, like at a certain level in a design organization, you're no longer like designing things like you're designing designers. Like you're designing like where designers sit in an organization, what that organization looks like. And that I don't I think there's like quite a few designers who don't really put themselves in that category. They're often like Peter principled into that category. But I think like you can still work at that level in the ideas space you don't have to just like help completely be like oh i'm now i'm just like a manager managing people you can also use design thinking to essentially yeah basically kind of shape what you're doing from an organizational perspective
0: yeah i mean it, yeah it was interesting how you talked about you know systems thinking and you know and design thinking kind of being coupled, right, you know, and and getting the best out of out of both. And it kind of expands and it it gives you a a much broader playing field inside an organization. So I I found that really fascinating.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, uh, yeah, something interesting to me is like, there is a friction, like it does feel like there's a friction when you look at sort of uh, formalized systems thinking tools and methods. You look at things like causal loop diagramming, kind of thinking about things as forces. And it does kind of like puts you in this level where things feel really abstract. And so I think there's a lot of designers who feel uncomfortable about that, especially when they've been... I don't know. They sort of view their philosophy as kind of like taking a really humanistic lens, kind of being grounded in empathy. And these things feel like they're at odds with each other. But I think one of the reasons that I wanted to read the book is like, I think you can have both lenses. Like, I think you can actually take this approach to understanding that systems thinking, one, it doesn't necessarily need to be entirely about abstraction. Like, it doesn't need to be entirely about like, these forces that are kind of not based in like human behavior. And you can kind of ground that thinking by using kind of like, how individuals behave to, to basically align with like, how you might normally think as a designer, or how you might normally approach design thinking It's just Mm. using it to kind of think about things maybe at scale, or thinking about things more broadly from an altitude a few layers up than you normally would be thinking about things. Like a good example is just like, I, I think I talk a quite a bit about how we're still kind of designing things for the benefit of individual use, like in the moment. So if you think about how many designers make decisions about experiences, like think about usability testing, right? Like you have somebody sitting there in the moment, like walking through what they're going to do. And that lacks so much context around like what's what surrounds them, what kind of like drives all of that decision making. And I think like part of it is we just need to kind of design more broadly than that. And these tools are kind of like meant to serve many different types of people. They're meant to kind of account for people who are not involved in these processes, education, like working in education has been really eye opening in that regard, because how many ed tech developers, they're still kind of designing things in a way where they just like, they just have a teacher kind of like when they're testing it, your usability testing, they have to have a teacher like walking through something. And it's like, yeah, you have to account for like, who is the buyer here? Like, what are the pressures from the administration? Like what learning management systems are they using this with? What is the funding like in their school district? like. What, what does the student population look like? Do they have a lot of like multilingual learners? Do they like, are there a lot of policies in that learning environment or, you know, in that state yeah. or that country that affect how this is happening? What kinds of high stakes testing is happening? And like, often if are just like, oh, I'm just overwhelmed with this. Like, we're just like designing an ed tech. We're just like designing like a thing <laughs> for teachers to use. And it's like, but without understanding all this stuff, you are at, you are putting... You're just like your product's at risk because there's so many decisions being made outside of what the teacher does in that moment that you, you're you kind of missing the boat, maybe even on areas of opportunity, right? Or areas of innovation that might help facilitate the use of that product or lead to better outcomes. So yeah, th- those things are all interconnected.
1: I thought it was, you know, if, it's really interesting if you just if if you simply, and for those of you who haven't read the book yet, if you simply look at the chapter structure of your book in the way you've thought it, one the very first thing you're saying is actually let's talk about the shortcomings of user centered design, right? And I think that there's not enough acknowledgement of the designer centered um approach. That so we can we can throw sticks and stones at design thinking a lot and how it's been industrialized and rolled out and kind of you know, copy pasted too much. And the, you know, the, if you put rubbish into it, then you get rubbish out of it, all of that kind of stuff. And, and designers all over the world are saying, yeah, I would put much better input into that. But at the end of the day, we're still taking input and then internalizing it in order to then externalize something that we have designed. Right. So there's still this, this, this kind of shortcoming in the systems thinking mindset. I always feel like tries to take itself out of that and observe you know, So my first encounter with system thinkers was, was, well, not my first encounter, but my first encounter in seeing it really well deployed was when they would say that a program of work couldn't start until everybody had taken part in the study. And they're like, what's the study? Why does everybody need to take part? Said, everybody that's going to affect change on this program needs to study the system we're about to change. What do you mean by saying? So you go and observe and experience the system. And, and what they didn't mean was go talk to users and just have a conversation with them. They meant really genuinely understand all the calls or loops and see all of that. And so, you know, this is in banking. So it was a lot of call listening and then observations of agents doing the calls and then combining that with then the design researchers deepening by doing customer interviews, but ethnographically and in context. And you'd, you'd just pull all this stuff together, as well as the throughput of the system, the process measurements. And, and they would do this study, and then they would have an understanding of, as best as possible, how the system is right now. And I don't I don't know many design teams that, that get to do that, but I have seen fairly systems thinking teams that get permission to do that, because they've come from a continuous improvement place where the, the organization understands, oh yeah, I'm going to get some micro improvement by really studying this one thing. But when you put the two things together, so I thought it was really interesting the way you, you layered that into the book. What? Are, but you mentioned this, and I think Brian and I have been talking about this as well, which is the overwhelm. So you mentioned this, the more you unpick and go back and back and back, the more you kind of get to like the whole thing. And, and it's, complex and it's big and it's overwhelming for designers who aren't experienced in in doing that you know what's what's been your observation you know how, how to avoid that overwhelm where has it been successful that people don't simply get overwhelmed by that you know maybe, maybe it's right they do sometimes like your garage example like you know once you unpick it you go oh crap it's not going to work stop now that's a result i agree but how do we avoid the overwhelm where you do need to push through that in order to make change?
2: Yeah. So first off I wanted to just like acknowledge that process that you had outlined earlier in terms of, yeah, kind of like understanding the status quo first and foremost, and then kind of figuring out how to design for it. And yeah, like that's how the, that's how the, book is organized it's like it's really around analyzing the way that the system works today understanding the incentives understanding the stakeholders and players and then figuring out where interventions lie which of course those different interventions have you know what we call multi-finality so it's like it's not just like it's not just going to be one solution there's an like there's one app for this. Yeah. And it's going to kind of solve this whole system. I think understanding the system helps you understand like there's various solutions that probably need to work in tandem in order to constitute change in a meaningful way. And uh, of course, like one of the things that I mentioned is that we're, you you can't really like think about solutions as solutions because you know, today's problems were yesterday's solutions as Peter sang who wrote the fifth discipline has said and it's it's like that acknowledgement that helps you understand that there's not going to be kind of like any sort of silver bullet and yeah in terms of like that sort building that sort of understanding I think one of the biggest questions I get is like as you're analyzing a system like where do you stop <laughs> and I've definitely been there, especially when it comes to the causal loop diagramming and you're like, it's just growing and growing and growing, but we forgot this, but we forgot this. And I, I don't actually have like a super good answer for that. I think there's a point, well, one, nobody is doing this alone. Like nobody is working on a causal loop diagram in isolation. Like the place you are doing this is in workshops and they should be multidisciplinary. they should have different stakeholders who are involved at different points in the state system and are different state and are different types of decision makers and I think if you do it that way, you'll find some sort of like more like natural stopping points because having the right people involved who will then have the decision making power to make change in the system there you know, there's this concept of bounded rationality, like their, their information is basically limited to the areas that they understand, but you can all collectively expand your knowledge by having the right people in the room. And you as a designer are acting, not just like as a contributor to that knowledge, but you're also acting as the facilitator of drawing out what people know. So, doing that, you might have a causal loop diagram. I think there's, I don't think I included this in the book, but there's this really great book called Systems Thinking for Social Change by David Peter Stroh. And he has some causal loop diagrams in there. And they're literally, they're so elegant. They're like two or three loops that describe basically the housing crisis in a region. And it's like, that's not a trivial problem, right? Like that is An insanely complex problem, but I think because he was able to kind of work with the right stakeholders to kind of synthesize it, you can immediately see how there's these kind of vicious loops that basically point to root cause. I think I have one in the book that is just like two loops that kind of talk about the relationship between urban sprawl and the divestment in public transportation. And once you can kind of like articulate that root cause, there's many, many, many different ways of intervening in that space. So you don't necessarily need a hundred causal loops connected together to kind of tell that story. It's just about kind of like gleaning the right information from those who you're involving in like whatever problems you're trying to solve.
1: This, uh, one of the things that, I'd love to ask you a little bit about, if I could, one of the things that Brian and I are trying to explore, which is we've got this thesis, I guess, which is that the uh, the the nature of change in business, uh, especially for large scale organisations, which become which are complex in themselves, but are full of systems yeah, and operate systems. within other systems. The nature of change is is not as knowable as people think it is, or it's not as deterministic as people think it is. So most large organizations seem to approach change by pulling together a one, two, three-year plan with funding agreed and some outcomes at the end of that. Uh, and the outcomes look like solutions, and we've all experienced this, which is that in, in year zero, there is a strategy paper. There's some pretty solid solutioning in it. And then there's a three-year plan to get there. However, I, I think anybody that has... Uh, done any work at a systems level would understand that you know the minute you start tweaking one thing you're pulling on another and and then there's externalities that come in and actually doing large-scale change we're saying is a bit like going through a liminal liminal state where you actually can't know exactly what it's going to look like in three years time but everybody acts as if we're going to right and so our, our thesis is that that mindset which We think system thinkers, and to an extent, many designers, especially those involved in futures, are quite comfortable with that mindset. I don't think that many classic strategy trained or or even operationally experienced executives are as comfortable. I I wondered if you had any thoughts on that kind of thesis, any experience that you could pull on from when you've been researching your book, because... When I when I saw this and I saw that you wanted to show designers what systems thinking was about and how it was useful for them, I, I saw that personally as some bridge between the people we'd try we'd quite like to reach, which is these executives who you think aren't aware enough of this type of thinking, and the designers who want to reach them because they're not at the tables they want to hear. So I don't know, Brian, if you've got anything you want to add on to that before we kind ask Cheryl what you think.
0: No, I think I think I think that's a nice segue. I, I was am I'm, I'm quite interested in 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 hearing what Cheryl has to say about that,
1: and yeah, I don't expect you like have answers, Cheryl. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, here you just didn't, you know, boom, here we go. Oh, but we're, I,
0: hoping, I mean, we're hoping you do.
1: We're hoping, <laughs> But just really interested to know what you what you think about that articulation. Like, what's your response to that?
2: Yeah, well, I totally agree with that, and just like in terms of you know, kind of people feeling comfortable with certain levels of ambiguity or an understanding that you can't, like that this doesn't work in sort of a linear way. I think it really aligns with uh there's that Karl Popper had that philosophy about clouds and clocks where he talks about, you know, there are cloud problems and there are clock problems. And when you are trying to design a clock, you kind of know what it needs to do. It needs to kind of tell time. So you are just going to engineer it in order to, be able to do what it needs to do. And then there's cloud problems, which are kind of messy and nebulous and yeah, very like cloud-like, right? Like there's not like a clear solution. They are, you know, somewhat circular. And I think some of the issue, and I think this, this stems from just me working like primarily in the technology industry, right? Is like, we have like an engineering mindset to a lot of cloud problems. So like, we're kind of thinking about just like directionally, like, oh, we can solve this by just like building this thing. And if we kind of make it work, then that should, that should be the solution. And then all you have to do is like maintain it or whatever. There's nothing you have to change, you know, like a lot of like, technology like the big technology sector companies, like as like social media platforms or whatever, have learned this the hard way that like they're because they're dealing in like the social human behavioral space, like a lot of what they're doing actually falls into the cloud category, but they're kind of solving it as though they are cloud problems. Like when you're trying yeah. to solve hate speech on your platform like that is a cloud problem that's not a cloud problem Mm -hmm. so there's multi-finality there like there's many different things you would have to do in order to navigate just like navigate that problem and I think that's one way to think about it from a systems thinking perspective like you're not solving problems you're kind of navigating them you're like better navigating them you're shedding light on them etc and I think yeah part of the issue is like large-scale change when we kind of take this approach that like just feels like we're building a series of clocks or we're maybe building one big better clock (laughs) and really (laughs) a clock is like one possible way of navigating this problem space of like you know a hundred other different ways then we're always going to be disappointed by like those three-year plans right especially like in a large organization where there's so many variables and different incentives i think that's something that's like not commonly acknowledged is like how people are incentivized in organizations and how differently they're incentivized like many of them are incentivized to keep things like as is like to maintain the status quo so yeah that's like a big barrier but it just kind of goes unnoticed and like basically like not talked about so that's uh yeah
1: yeah and that's i think that's one of the first things i learned from looking at as, as the people I was working with called them the studies, you know, was that, you know, you might turn around and say, well, like, people people in this system are incentivized to, you know, to, I'll be blunt about it, to, to end the call early, you know, as early mm-hmm. as possible. And then go, well, that's really interesting because every person I've talked to who is an agent has said that they're there to really help the customers and they enjoy these conversations. Right. And, you know, when they really get into it with customers, you know, it's really fulfilling. Right. Okay. So what we don't mean is that somebody's sitting there and saying, I I I want you to finish this call early, but the nature of everything else that is around them, the system that is around them means that it is inevitable that we will put this force on them to do that. And there's, I think there's something when we get, one of the things I'm concerned about is when we get up to the more senior levels of of, of leadership, the forces that are on some of these larger scale organizations are external forces of expected returns, market yeah. dynamics, and those are creating time boundaries to expected returns and certainty. There's an externalized need for certainty that becomes internalized. And therefore, if we're going to go from A to B, then I need to know exactly what B looks like and what the steps are. Because otherwise I can't ladder that up to go external and say, I, I, we're going to spend three billion pounds over the next three years and this is exactly how and why, right? yeah which is different from like saying you 3 billion will make this organization better, more responsive, more relevant, you know, which is what you want us to be, you know, which is, that's a totally different, that's cloudish.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get into this that much in the book, but also the relationship between what is being measured. Right. And like, the fact that we end up working towards, I think I touched on it, but we end up working towards the measurement rather than like the actual outcomes that we want to see. And the measurement becomes the outcome, right? Actually, There's a whole book to be written about that. And I think um, when you, you see that a lot in organizations, right? If you're measured by like your daily active users, but like in order to create a I don't know, like a safer product or something, it would rely on you kind of slowing down how many people view your product on a daily basis. That is just never, is never going to work as, as long as like the product is incentivized that way, as long as your shareholders are expecting that, etc. cetera. So yeah, that external pressure is like, yeah, not to be, It's it's definitely not a trivial issue. And I, I think, like, I don't know. I feel like it's an unspoken thing in a lot of organizations, kind of like those relationships, especially when what you want to do for better outcomes, like in your organization or for your end users or what have you, is actually at odds with the way things are incentivized and the things that we're measuring to prove success.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think... I th- that's interesting because you know talking about you know the the three-year plan and the investment i mean if you were to turn around and say you know the the first billion (laughs) or however much it comes out to and the first piece of work we're going to do is we're going to do we're going to map you know our our organization organizational systems and and i think Though that becomes a stepping stone then to making the decisions about the things you're going to change and how you're going to change them it's it's not directly probably seen as delivering value in and of itself but but the act of doing it will lead to will lead to value, so that's kind of one thing I think so so trying to get permission to do that when organizations are going through change and and in getting across the the importance of, of understanding you know systemically the organization and those external pressures mapping all of that in and then making your decisions about what and how you're going to change that's that's probably one thing the other thing is around the the measurements i i do i do think it's really interesting that organizations going through change you know quite often there's a uh, you know I've, I've 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 led change in teams before and there's always there's always a you know a an organizational diktat at some point that says yes you need to completely you know restructure reconfigure change this this team the way this this whole thing functions within the organization oh however you need to keep the wheels on the bus you know and and so therefore you still need to deliver everything that you were you know meant to deliver but but you also need to rip everything apart and change it simultaneously and and these things are at odds because you know they they need to recognize that 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 you know that change will have knock on you know uh, knock on impact on other teams on other parts of the organization on the on the you know the key metrics that that team is being measured by, and and yet they don't seem to quite understand that that you know it's like plucking strings on a you know on a harp I suppose you know you're 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 plucking lots of different strings and if you if you don't pluck them in you know some kind of musical order and make music you're just making sound and and I think I think you know this whole idea of you know understanding the underlying systems but then looking you know flipping everything over and then looking at you know what the expectations you know are of the organization then on people going through change those things need to shift and change and be influenced by the fact that they are going through change. They are in that state. So it's interesting.
2: Yeah. I think, and here is an interesting example. Like I've like, I think my organization has gone through this, but you know, how many organizations like go through something that they view as like relatively simple, like we are going to have fewer meetings because people need more downtime or what have you. But I think that aligns with like what you're saying about keeping the wheels on the bus It's like, if this is the way like you get work done now, even though people kind of hate it, you are just going to, you might have like no meetings for the first couple of weeks and then like the things don't get done, which I've normally gotten done to keep the wheels on the bus, then you're going to like slide back into the status quo, right? And so... I think oftentimes there's just this idea just just have fewer meetings like cut down on your 1 on 1s cut down but then all of the underlying systems point to the need for these meetings and if you don't address yeah. those then it's not going to change even something minor like that
1: the, meet- the meetings are, are are the the outcome of other drivers in the organization you know and and they have become necessary don't they I think this the it's really easy to kind of when you start to get into especially when you're thinking in, in systems and be, because that is you know a series of encapsulated things. so they overlap their systems within systems. It's like a fractal problem. It's easy to kind of get overwhelmed by that, I think. so a little bit like I think hey, three, four years ago the the, the the sound of the designers was getting quite loud too we're not at the right table. You know, and Brian's written a great article on the tables that we, we should be at. And I think Brian probably right, fair to say that, you know, what well, Cheryl's offering designers is a bunch of tools, tools that mean that they can go and work at any table and be effective, right? Which is kind of the point of your article. Like, just go to the tables where you can be useful. But that idea that, you know, why aren't we up here or why are we working on this? Because why aren't we involved in the decision before the decision before the decision before? And it it can become a little bit feel a bit defeatist sometimes yeah. when you when you don't get to be doing that I guess also there's a risk that when you start to use some of the system thinking tool sets you'll uncover the complexity of all the other systems and that can be quite overwhelming i I feel like we need to acknowledge that yes uh, there are a lot of large or legacy or organizations and I, and I can anybody that's gone beyond anybody that's gone beyond startup and unicorn and error into scale up Or have been around for fifty plus years. They, yes, they have their ways of doing things. They have these things embedded. Would you? What do you think about if I say? I think the world is beginning to acknowledge a lot more that systems are 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 fundamental to the way the world works. As it's more, it's always been known. And anybody that's been working systems thinking for the last thirty years will say. you know Peter Senge and 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 all these fantastic books have been written many many years ago but I feel like people are actually acknowledging because a lot of global events people are getting to understand the world is quite systemic so it feels to me like a really timely time to arm designers with it even if even if they're not going to solve all problems in their organization just by reading your book and I don't mean that in any critical way but I think they need the skills in your work to deal with what's coming next, which is I think that organisations are going to have to start thinking systems a lot more in and, order and, to survive. And on
0: that, I, th- I also think I also think I mean you know Don Norman's you know humanity centered design now changing changing the tune from from human centered design to humanity centered design takes it up uh, an altitude or uh, several altitudes in the sense of starting to think you know much more. In a much more connected way, but I think I think you speak very specifically to that in the in the book in terms of in terms of what does it really mean for designers, and I I think you know in terms of you know you, you talked a little bit in the book as well about the you know the biases you know it, in, within systems and biases of the people behind the the you know that are engaged in the, in the process and systems thinking. I mean, I'm kind of I'm kind of interested in that as well because it does it does feel like you know, the, there's the opportunity, even when you're taking a systems thinking approach, depending on, you know, the, the engagement to the people and how it's being facilitated and, and all of that to, 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 to have it impacted by, you know, the biases of a number some number of people that are engaged in the process and kind of skewed or slanted. And so you're not getting a true systemic view but you're getting one based on, you know, a a lens or a filter.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I'm glad you brought that up. So, so first Martin, I do agree with you that I do think, I don't know, I do feel like there is a trajectory that Mm -hmm. people are thinking more about systems and how they're interconnected. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. One our global pandemic was, like, a big wake-up call in terms of how interconnected things are. Like, you suddenly saw stories about, like, hey, this is why there's a toilet paper shortage. And I think, you know, and then kind of thinking about, like, the intersections of, like, policy and human behavior when it came to vaccinations or mask uh, compliance and things like that, like, people are really like, I think it's surfacing for them if it hadn't surfaced before, along with systemic racism, right? Like, I have not, I had not really heard the term systemic racism used very widely in the mainstream. But then, like, after 2020, like, I think people were really acknowledging, like, racism does not just mean individual bigotry. There are kind of, like, systemic things that are happening and that have happened historically that have informed, you know, How things work today. And so, yeah, there is this kind of like awakening to this idea of, yeah, there are things, there are systems, there are people in power, there are ways that things are incentivized that might not match up to how we want things to happen. I think also like, you know, climate emergency, obviously, because I think for a long time, I feel like we were being given this, I just like this sort of philosophy or idea like, you can make like individual change like when it comes to the climate emergency and i think we're kind of like widely acknowledging now it's like no like there are so many things that need to change from like the corporate level to the policy level to the governmental level and you as an individual you know basically trying to cut down your carbon output which by the way it was like a term developed by bp is like you know uh basically like a, a drop in the bucket. And I think these are kind of like a mind it's like it's sort of like it feels in some ways like a mind a societal mindset shift, right? And I think that kind of connects in a way Brian, your question, where I kind of talk about a designer, like knowing like designers are my audience for this book, your positionality like in terms of what you bring to the table what kinds of biases you bring to the table what kind of background you bring to the table you're like you are going to inform what you're doing whereas like there's been this sort of like i don't know kind of like classical view of design thinking where like you're an outside observer you're not part of the system you're just there to kind of like neutrally and objectively kind of design things for people but it's kind of like, yeah, we've seen all sorts of problems with that, <laughs> like when oh, people yeah. from like very privileged backgrounds come in and try mm-hmm. to like design things for folks from more like resourced or like marginalized communities. It just like does not go that well. Oh. And I think, yeah, knowing that that's where you sit, and also again going back to bonded rationality, the limits of your own knowledge. Like you need to be involving like a wider set of stakeholders in general. And I think this is a this is a sort of concept that tends to be forgotten, I think, when people talk about the formalities of systems thinking it is like Peter Checkland, who is like one of the like early systems thinkers from like the 1960s and 70s, he talked a lot about like engaging other like stakeholders and making sure you are he he didn't use the term equity, but he was thinking about equity. He's like, How do you shift? power, like by engaging different types of people within Mm -hmm. the systems analysis process. And I think it's like that kind of gets lost in the sauce, because he, you know, like, he was like working in the space of like, organizational science or something like that. But I mean, knowing that there are inequities in an organization, there's also inequities in a society, and these can, like, these things are connected.
1: It feels like, and this takes me straight back to your first your first chapter. It feels to me like there's a bit of a when you get this perspective, and it, I think it is if you if you haven't worked with systems thinkers, and if you haven't worked in that kind of style with that mindset, it is a shift. It's a mindset shift. Your first chapter talks about the the inherent harms of user centered design, and and we've touched on it already, uh, but. When you take a systems thinking view, you inevitably see the cogs in the machine. If you like mm. the influence, it, it, it surfaces power. It surfaces influence. It surfaces control. And you know, the, fine, you can you can see that as potentially when you're inside a inside an organization looking at one team versus another team, you can kind of go, okay, but now zoom out a bit and they look at the department. Zoom out a bit, look at the organization. And you see why things just are embedded to happen the way they do, and uh, it it does it does remind me of the of the of the one of the lessons that I think a lot of people have had to learn, which is that the first thing you have to do is acknowledge and understand and acknowledge right that and see it for what it is, and then the then there's the work right, and just the the work to constantly acknowledge and understand that and shift and change and nudge towards a, a better different different view and it is not easy to do that and it is because everything's interconnected it's actually quite it's it painful for a lot of people involved and I think that's one of the things it's really important to arm yourself with these skills that you're talking about the uh, for a lot of designers, I think they might look at this and go, "Yeah, sure, okay." So end-to-end journey mapping, okay. So stakeholder mapping, you know, yeah, we do that, but but not with the mindset that you're talking about, which is, you know, I think we do that in a really bounded way, right? In design, we kind of hive off. I think you quoted Jesse as saying, you know, designers' uh, job is to uncover a better problem to be a better problem to be solved. But very often we're bounded by the problem that we're told to solve, yeah. you know. So th- this actually really—it's—it's it's a very challenging thing to take on, but a really essential skill set.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it's—I don't know. It's kind of interesting, just like expanding. It's just expanding your stakeholders is one way to adopt the mindset, right? Like, I think we're oftentimes like designing in the silo within our organization. Let's say like you're working on a product and I think this comes from me working in education, but there's many other spaces like this, like healthcare, government, et cetera. But like, you're just kind of like making decisions within your organization. And when you involve people from outside of the organization, you're like, I'm just kind of going to involve potential end users or customers or what have you. And I don't think we think to reach out to like others in the system who might not be involved in direct decision-making of this particular product. Like, I, I talk a lot about policymakers, for example, because they are going to have an impact on every on anything you do, especially like in the technology space or not especially in the technology space, but they are involved there. So you need to engage with policymakers, like whether it's like, within your workshops or interviewing them or what have you, I often reach out to academic researchers, show me an academic researcher in a space who doesn't want to talk about their research with you. Like I have yet to find one. So <laughs> I think if they're an expert in their space, they will be like happy to talk to you about their research, especially if they know if it's going to inform decision-making that happens in basically the spaces with in which they haven't had influence. Like When they do research, they come out with insights and they're just like, okay, these are the findings. But oftentimes they make recommendations about changes in society or what have you. And they don't, there isn't that connection between like when private industry starts thinking about those things, right? So involving them is like a really powerful way to get a systemic lens on any space that you're problem solving within. And I think it also like keeps that, sort of view on kind of power and decision-making intact as well, like that goes externally, like beyond your organization and maybe your executive's techno-optimism or what have you that you're kind of like facing all the time, (laughs) right? yeah it's funny like brian that you brought up donald norman i think he's kind of like trying to make up for like his past sins with like this <laughs> new perspective
0: that, that's the but thing.
2: yeah and there's still there's a i've seen a lot of criticism about like him not acknowledging things like the designer's yes. positionality still so he's trying mm-hmm. to like rewrite the book but he's still kind of doing it in an unsatisfying way into many in many regards
1: <laughs> yeah goes well, back to the you've got to acknowledge You've got to acknowledge how the system has been working and is working right now and you have to acknowledge everything's part in that and there's not I think the point there, Cheryl, is there's not enough acknowledgement coming from Don about that at the yeah. moment and that's the criticism that's being laid at, at him. You can't just say and there's a shiny bright future where we're all happy, right. you know, yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: Doesn't truck anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cheryl, we're nearly at the end of our time with you together yeah. which is sad but the great thing about having written a book is that your thoughts live on through the book and I'd really encourage people to to pick that up closing the loop but I just wanted to ask you one more thing about it uh, for people listening in who might picking it up this is a book explaining and, and helping designers to understand systems thinking there's a lot of overlap in, in potentially in you know, some activities that People would be doing as a result of this, but there's also some clear distinctions so why does why does some of it feel familiar uh, but what's the difference uh, it's that I, so why have you written it you know it, it's not it, It's not as simple as oh, here's a bunch of activities for you, for people to do in workshops, and, work and they're all happy right but there are some things in the book that that will feel familiar to designers, and they may kind of oh well, we do this." What's the What would you say is the turn point, the difference for you? Say, no, the, the point I want you to try and understand that is the difference here. What would you say that is?
2: Yeah, so there are things in there, right, that, as you mentioned before, designers already do. They do things like stakeholder mapping and things like that. And I did have a moment, sort of like a little bit of a crisis about like, should I, should I be writing about this? Like, this is already in design research other design research and strategy books but i think what is the distinction is the mindset around systems thinking so kind of i talk about sort of the underlying yeah sort of like driving concepts which are interconnectedness causality and wholeness and trying to continually use that lens to kind of think more expansively about whatever it is you're doing. And so if you're using that lens, you know, a stakeholder mapping might look kind of different. Like I've been asked like whether stakeholder mapping is just like, oh, well, I'm just like mapping kind of like organizational stakeholders. And I'm like, no, you're like really going beyond that. When we talk about a system, we're talking about that sort of like underlying structure that kind of affects like all of the potential like decision making in this space. So who is involved there? Even if you're kind of centering a certain type of stakeholder, right? And then other exercises like like using the iceberg model or fishbone diagrams, like these are things that can be used in a fairly limited way. But if you're taking the lens of like trying to expand beyond how you normally think about this, like in terms of the stakeholders, in terms of incentives, in terms of power dynamics, in terms of forces, then you end up with a potentially very different picture. And there are also things like developing a theory of change, which I borrowed from other sort of disciplines, which kind of like force you to pinpoint the difference between like the output that you can create And the outcome that you want which is something that i see conflated in organizations all the time (laughs) is like what are the the thing you're doing versus the thing you want to happen that happens beyond your control um
1: that that one for me was critical i think when we're talking about liminal liminality which is you know the the nature of the true nature of change in organizations i thought that was really important to be looking at brian the other thing i was thinking about was that 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 call that designers have had for a long time which is why aren't we able to be in these decisions in these discussions I think this is a missing skill set and mindset at the tables they want to be at and also in the designers who want to get up there as well it's a but it's a bridging mindset I think And, and I think that's why people should learn it because otherwise they won't be able to make that bridge. You can't go to that table just with the beauty of design. Mm-hmm. And user centered design is problematic as you as you start the book with.
0: Yeah, I mean this is this is why <clears throat> this is why when I talk about it, I talk about it as a series of pivots for the this is another thing to add to the pivots, by the way. It's a series of pivots for a designer yeah. going from, you know, a practitioner to a people manager, people manager to a discipline leader discipline leader to an organizational leader right and and i think i think for that particularly for that last pivot this systems thinking viewpoint is is going to be really fundamentally key because they're going to the table with something more to talk about right Mm -hmm. than just design as a capability or practice they're they're you know when when you start talking about you know design as facilitation you know it's it's a different it becomes a different thing at that table. They they can they can be the kind of cohesive glue between other execs to get people thinking about holistically about the interconnectedness of how these things work and, and how they function and maybe exposing some of that into that space.
2: Yeah, yeah, and doing it elegantly, right? Like in a mm-hmm. like I think that's where kind of like sort of the visual frameworking skills that designers tend to be versed at comes comes in handy yeah Yeah, and i don't think like designers can be at that table with just like the idea of like you were saying martin of like the beauty of design or just like come to the table with just user advocacy right like which is what some of them try (laughs) to do when they make that pivot but it's like yeah you have to be thinking systemically about like all of these other ways that things work than just like those lenses yeah
1: and i you 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 mentioned the visual skills, the user advocacy. Those are depths I think they can bring with them. Yeah. Yeah. So I think design, there are depths to design that will make a difference when they're there. But I think what you've done is you've articulated it for designers that helps them understand the bridge that get them to a higher order conversation. I think there is work on the other side to be done as well, though, with executives and leaders to understand the liminality of change and on and on you know, of transformation, which is where it's boring as well. Cheryl, thank you very much for spending some time with us and discussing this. And thank you very much for writing the book. I, you know, as soon as I started to read it, I was like, design needs this. (laughs) So, you know, and there's plenty of really interesting books out there that I love reading. But this is one of those ones where I thought the design needs this, you know, which is as opposed to I'm just personally interested in it. I'm uh, so thank you for writing it. Thanks for joining us. Yeah,
2: thank you so much. Like, I really enjoyed this conversation, and yeah, your questions are so thoughtful. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, that's good. We 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 really appreciate the time. It's uh, as Martin said, the the book is just really. I think I think when you're able to bring disciplines together in in the way that you've done in the book, it's it it really you know you're creating something that that you know is is much bigger than than kind of the sum of those two parts, and it. We, we've talked about how you know, pathing of designers, and you know, what are some of the routes they could take to to have those more engaging, more strategic level conversations. And I think this, I think what you've done is you've you've created one of those avenues. You've you've really exposed it in terms of a path that you know a designer could conceivably take and skills they could learn to make themselves more relevant in the organizations they work in. So I I, I actually really. really appreciate that thinking and uh and i really enjoyed it as well
2: yeah absolutely yeah thanks so much that means a lot to me i'm also excited about y'all writing a book about this topic
1: so if we get there you know we'll see where we get to
0: (laughs) (laughs) it may just end up being lots the podcasts it might be
1: it might be and then but you know maybe brian if we string it out long enough then we can just ask chat gpt to (laughs) right. there you go be fine it'll be good it'll be like
2: gbt8 will will write it
0: yeah <laughs> we'll, we'll just feed in all the transcripts and say give us a book."
1: <laughs> give us a book <laughs> hey. oh so thanks uh thanks again cheryl we're gonna put in with the uh, show notes where people can get hold of you how do you like to be contacted or do you hide away
2: no i'm happy to be contacted like get in touch with me on linkedin that's probably the easiest place to find me and i am on twitter but i don't I don't know.
1: I don't check it a lot lately. <laughs> great. Okay, so we'll put uh, all of your contact details in the yeah. uh, in the show notes, as well as a link to the book. As yes. Well, so did I give
2: Did I give you all a
1: discount yep. code? We'll put that up there with that. I'm awesome. sure people will be very glad. Yes. To get
2: that, Lou Rosenfeld
1: yeah, so will kill me. if
2: <laughs> That's not included. <laughs> He's like, always <laughs> give a discount code. <laughs> 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 oh
1: okay, so we'll get that discount code in the in the show notes as well. Joel, <laughs> thank you very much for we'll leaving to the rest of your day. Thanks for you so much. For
2: your yeah, time. this has been so fun. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm so excited for this to be released. I'm going to share it with my entire network.
1: Huh. No, thanks. Wonderful.
2: <laughs> thanks right. a lot. Then have a good one.
0: You too. Thanks for listening to Liminal Leaders. We'd love to continue the conversation with you, our listeners, hear feedback about this episode, thoughts about who we should talk to next, pose questions you'd like us to consider in future conversations, and as always, suggestions for new and interesting cocktails to get us through the long nights ahead.
1: And if you want to learn more about this podcast, its hosts or guests, go to liminalleaders.com. Thank you for listening.